0: Ladies and gents, uh, welcome back. This is Engineers. Uh, we've got the absolutely fabulous Joe Peterson on board with us from uh, Banked. He's going to be talking to us about the world of digital payments and Banked's journey uh, embarking that. It's it's a massively interesting space at the moment with uh, the world of COVID. So we're keen to explore that and understand what underpins digital payments around technology. So, Joe, do you want to just give us a little intro on you and why you're here and maybe some points we're here to discuss?
1: Sure. Um, basically, I'm Joe Peace. I'm the CTO at Banked. Um, I joined Banked in January uh, this year, pre-COVID, but considering COVID, that feels about 48 years ago at this awesome. point. Um, so I joined um, with quite an explicit set of reasons right it's exactly what you described there that digital payments fundamentally are changing at the moment There's technology that's emerging uh, through things like open banking and others which are enabling a set of features and end results for merchants and consumers that were just never possible before um and bank's idea of like actually really attacking that and really saying like we want to be the next payment network right we want to compete with visa and mastercard Um, I think that was a a real draw to me Um, to actually and we step on board.
0: Yeah, I I think I'd love to try and explore because there are so many players at the moment in digital Mm -hmm. payments and open banking, you know, and further down the line we can explore um, why banked are a little bit different and, of course, we're going to understand what you guys do as a business, but I think, especially at the moment, digital payments... It's is one of those industries that has just taken off. I've seen um, Adyen, excuse my pronunciation for anyone that's Dutch out there, uh, their share price since start of COVID has doubled from something mm-hmm. like 730 euros to I think close to 1400. Don't quote me on that, but that that is just purely off the back of how many transactions must must be running through their platform. Oh, it's, exciting... it's
1: extraordinary. I think that um, a trend that we've certainly seen at banks and the wider industries you talked about seeing pretty dramatically is that COVID is pushing more and more transactions online. Yeah. Um, it's pushing more and more what used to be physical transactions into this digital space. Yeah. And so merchants particularly are looking for new and kind of innovative ways to manage that payments experience. Okay. One, because ultimately like they're in the business of conversion and so either the business is making sales and therefore offering the best payment products uh, is always in their interest but also on the other side of things like even though they're generating a huge amount more business they're under a margin pressure they've never been under before Okay, Um, where actually the payment fees that you classically associate with payments I mean like for example I think from 1.4% per transaction to 2 or 3% depending on like the the deal that you have um, that can have a pretty significant impact on the business's bottom line yeah um and the implication there is that a large number of merchants are starting to ask fundamental questions about the way they deal with payments and the kind of payments that they take um which is where organizations like banked um are really starting to come in because we can actually like are we charge 0.1% um versus uh, uh sort of, uh, the classic. 1.4 or north uh, for credit cards. So you can imagine for a business, that's actually really appealing because you can actually knock a very significant proportion of your margins um, just by changing your payment provider.
0: Yeah. How, how do you do that? And well, I guess l- let's explore what Banked do and then we can yeah. understand how you can actually offer a service at that cost. So wh- what do Banked do?
1: So Banked are what are called a PISP, um, and that is a way that the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, refers to people that broker payments. So basically, as a merchant, you come to us and say, I would like to make a payment. And this is the person who's going to uh, uh, who's going to make that payment to my account, for example, as a merchant. Um, we also could do peer-to-peer, but again, it, it's a simple example. Um, what we then do is we take that metadata about that payment, like the amounts, the destination account, etc., And then we set up that payment with the um, with the payer's bank. So, if you are a Santander customer or a Barclays customer, we'll use the open banking APIs in order to create a payment. Um, the the customer will then go through and authorize that payment with their bank, and then what we'll do is then we'll like maintain that state and pass that state back to the merchant, very like a credit card payment. So they can say what is the state of the payment? Is it paid? Is it not? But what makes banked slightly different from um, Uh, other kind of open banking providers is ultimately our goal is to sit much further up the stack than other providers. Um, Many other providers in this market want to provide infrastructure, right? They want to provide API aggregation, for example. Um, Our goal is to be much further up the stack than that. Um, Ultimately, we want to build an experience for users because ultimately as a business, and this is a lesson that the payments industry has learned over the last 10 or 20 years, is that moving money from A to B is the easy part of being a payments company the the challenging part is actually helping your merchants convert their customers and that's something that ultimately we're in the business of helping our customers convert and therefore just offering an api and kind of offering the tools i mean like there you go we don't actually think is the right way to do that offering a much more cohesive Kind of holistic view of what payments look like, we think is the right path forward, and so far, our um, customers have uh, started to identify with that.
0: This this might sound dim. Um, This is probably more for our uh, audience. What what did you mean by the phraseology of convert when when you say convert? What does that mean?
1: So, in this context, as a merchant, if I'm an online, if I'm an online retailer, let's assume I'm John Lewis, for example. Um, what I really care about as a business is the the funnel of a user landing on my website, uh, let's assume it's their website, um, selecting a product, putting that product in a cart, choosing to pay for that product, paying for that product, and then returning to your site, confirming you've bought that product. And that end-to-end process of going from A to B, from not purchasing to completing a purchase, is called a conversion. Gotcha. Um, and For most e-commerce websites, it's the thing they optimize for most. You hear them talk about conversion rate um, and others. Um, And so therefore, in this context, the payment provider is often this kind of black hole in the middle of your conversion process. Right? If you think about PayPal or somewhere else where ultimately your your user has decided they want to buy something, um, they've clicked pay with PayPal or pay with banked, and then they kind of disappear out into the ether. Right. And then they may or may not come back. Right. If the experience on that of that payment provider isn't good, it not well converting, it doesn't um, encourage consumers to complete that transaction, then you might lose people. Right. They'll be like, oh, I'm not going to pay and I'm going to leave. Um, and that's like the worst outcome for merchants. And so, as banks, we put a lot of time and a lot of effort in making sure that that part of the journey that we own, that we're responsible for, we do the best possible job we can in converting users to actually make a purchase. And again, there are implications, there are two sort of implications to that. The first is, kind of user experience, right? What do we do as part of the kind of the UI, UX to make that? But also kind of features, right? Like what are the things that we can offer you as a consumer that's going to encourage you to complete this purchase? Yeah. Um, so there's sort of two sides of the same coin.
0: Nice, okay. I've, I've got a couple of questions in there. That's that's really well articulated, thank you. Um, in terms, so let's start with this one actually. Um, In terms with going higher up the food chain, Mm -hmm. what challenges do you in the business foresee you might encounter? And then I want to talk to you a little bit about, I think, how you differentiating yourself in terms of some of the features that you offer and maybe some of that UI and UX. Because you have said that that aggregation or offering services around payments and data is what I've seen other open banking companies do but Mm -hmm. it would be interesting to explore a little bit about what you guys do.
1: Sure. Um, So almost starting from the second one forward, because it might actually help that conversation, is that um, what, what I mean by moving further up the stack is often when you, if you're a merchant and you want to acquire, Uh, payment service if you want to call open banking payment services Um, the majority of the offerings in the market they're really compelling and this isn't to disparage them in any way I think they're they're fantastic companies they do a great job Um, but often what they are is it's very API driven right they expose the the lowest level building blocks um, for you to then build a payment experience yourself um, which is great and that's often what that's sometimes what companies want but what the lesson that we've learned and the, what we're attacking is actually offering higher level building blocks so ultimately the, there are like some real discrete challenges that we've seen um with uh allowing people to use this new payment method right which to answer your first question this idea of like this is new right this is a new way of paying and therefore often the challenges you get are kind of consumer awareness where like, you're presented with this idea of pay-by-bank or pay-by-bank transfer, and people can be wary. right? They can be like, I've never seen that before. It involves my bank. It makes me nervous. Um, but a bunch of the challenges that we've seen, and one of the reasons we think it's valuable to offer these like higher level constructs for actually mm-hmm. implementing it, is that we've got solutions to those problems. Okay. right? And like the benefit of the commons and the benefit of scale we get is the more data we see, the better our experiences get. And so, for example, like we offer like a hosted checkout, which is okay. a checkout which incorporates all of those learnings, right? We offer an embedded checkout, which is like a JavaScript web component okay. that you drop onto a page that you can get the same thing. Like we, at, the, at that higher level, it enables our merchants to not run into so many of those issues and for them to convert better. Okay. Um,
0: what what might they see, by the way, on, on sure. the dashboard? What might they see? Um,
1: so like, if you take an example of our embedded checkout, which is a very um, popular way of doing it for us. So we, have, we offer, we have like a JavaScript version of it and yeah. we have like an iOS, uh, Android and React Native version. Um, if you were to drop that on your page, what you would see is you would use our API to create a payment session. So say this is the amount someone wants to pay. Um, you would then expose a payment ID Yep. To this uh, web component, you would put the, give the um, uh, payment ID as a attribute on the web component, yep. and what it would then do is it would then render um, a bank selection screen, and basically what yep. that does is it says for this payment that you've created, what are the available banks that a user can pay for, um, that they can use to actually make a selection. So, if, for example, if you're in the UK, it would render Santander, Barclays, etc., etc., as part as part of a list. Yep. Um, a user would then select that, they'd agree to the terms and conditions, and then there are kind of two options there. We have another button that dynamically uh, 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 updates to the bank brands so you click Santander, it lets it pay by Santander, it become red. And that's important because okay. it gives you like a hint that what's going to happen in the moment. Yeah. Um, and then therefore when they click that, the banking experience opens nice. um, and uh, they can authorize that link. Now, the, the nice thing about that is that, and actually like the SCA2, which is yeah. a... Uh, strong card, strong card authentication scheme, which is basically the thing you may have seen if you're using your card at the yeah. moment, whereby it might pop open your banking app yeah. and ask you to authorise a transaction. Yeah. That's actually been a huge friend to the folks in the open banking. Space because it's making that user experience of my banking app pops open and I need to authorize something, a common part of people's purchasing experiences. Yeah, and so therefore it it kind of it makes the open banking authorization feel less or feel more familiar.
0: Yeah,
1: um, users convert for
0: it. I've felt that when I've had too many beers on a Saturday and I try and order a Domino's and my Mondo (laughs) is just popping up and it's saying please authorize the payment. So I get it now. I get it now. Um yeah sorry
1: no,
0: no. Um, sorry okay. well, yeah no <laughs> I was going to say, um that's well answered. How can we understand a little bit more about I think the technology that underpins some of what you're doing, and you focused on or you made the reference to scale. We don't necessarily need to understand that at too much length, yep. but be interesting to do so, but I think understanding the technology piece and i think how you underpin what you're doing that would be great to try and understand
1: so there's somewhat of a strong philosophy of technology at Banked, um which is for lack of a more elegant way of describing it keeping it as simple as we can um there's a bunch of product challenges, commercial challenges, go-to-market challenges that our technology technology team have to solve on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis. What we don't want to be doing at the same time is fighting our technology choices. Um, and so that means trying to reduce complexity mm-hmm. as much as we can. Um, trying to, I mean, this has a, become a bit of a truism in the technology in the technology world, but we really want to only solve the challenges that only we can solve, right? Like, we don't want to be fighting a compiler as part of our day to day process. We don't want to be up, taking on too much of an operational burden, yeah. um, and so that affects the tools that we choose, right? Yeah. We take we, and the, actually, I, I suspect the tools that we choose are uncontroversial, right? For a startup like ours, like we use Rails, yeah. for example, for um, um uh, for a bunch of our kind of like front like internet facing services
0: yeah
1: um um like we lo- like we like the idea of a monolith right because it actually helps us right and actually like it enables us to go more quickly and reduces our operational burden yeah um i'm one of those very strong people I- I- i'm someone who has a very strong opinion about microservices okay um and i'm um, I, I almost feel like allergic to them in many contexts. I've, re- I've rarely seen them add anything but operational complexity. Really? Um, well, again, the kind of scale that we operate at, for sure. Right? Yeah. Like okay. microservices and those kinds of constructs ca- can work yeah. when you have large teams with structures that need a division of responsibility, okay. right? And where you start to chug on each other's toes, but a company like banks or even a, um, almost banked at an order of magnitude larger, like the results and the value that you get from them is pretty f- quickly outweighed by the negatives and the operational complexity that you could take on as part of it. Okay. Um, and again, the outcomes you can achieve the same thing. Yeah. So we use go for a couple of okay. our backend services, um, um but those are services, right? They're a service yeah. uh, rather than the micro, a macro service rather than the microservice in this context. Um, and so the idea of keeping it simple, using tools like Heroku.
0: Okay.
1: Right? Using tools that enable us to like again concentrate on writing the code that delivers functionality and value to our customers rather than needing to spend three months like writing like complex Terraform yeah. in order to sort of orchestrate a complex set of technology. Um and that's not necessarily to say that that's bad. I just think as a company, it's like a, a philosophy that we have of actually saying, well, where can we spend our time most effectively? Yeah. Um, where can we actually focus on the things that are going to drive value? Because, I mean, you probably know this as well as I do. Um, it's very easy to over engineer things. Yeah. Right. Ultimately, you get a bunch of engineers in a room and we love what we do, right? We're really passionate about it and we like, and we can go into a huge amount of detail. Um, and ultimately, it's very easy to fall into kind of an unproductive of thinking there right where you actually say oh, this is a cool technical solution but it doesn't necessarily derive value like right? it doesn't actually like have impact in the kind of things that you want to do yeah. um, and that again we're not perfect like at, at all but like that's something that we try and explicitly think about and explicitly try and um, uh, steer towards um, the opposite
0: direction who embedded that philosophy because that uh, I th- I think it's it's really smart it works for you clearly and I think it's quite easy at the moment to follow a lot of trends and noise that's in the industry that moves towards microservices, maybe serverless architecture. Of -hmm. course, these things, I'm sure, have their uses where they're needed, maybe at companies of bigger scale, whatever. Um, But who embedded that philosophy? That's a really interesting philosophy
1: yeah i think that i mean i think it's almost a banked it was a reaction okay right it was a it was a reaction to a challenge that we saw emerging um in the when the technology for the platform was first built it was built in a way that was how got this it was pre-optimized for scale okay true that way um where this idea where there were some decisions made, that they weren't bad decisions, right? They were just, they were things that as a net result ended up with a technology ecosystem that was harder to iterate. It was harder for a small team um, to manage and to push forward and to, to, to derive value from. And so therefore the team, and this was before I joined the team, like kind of looked at that and said, well, like, is this the best answer to the questions that we're posing? right is this the thing that enables us to do the things that we need to do to iterate really quickly mm-hmm. Um, and to actually be able to show value and actually like be ergonomic for us as engineers because um, often this idea of like ergon- the ergonomics of development is often something that's forgotten in these conversations right yeah. it's this idea where you can optimise for kind of abstract goals be it transactions per second or whatever yeah. it is um, and actually the ergonomics that the physical the, the, the manifestation of that technology as an engineer or group of engineers working on a project is often one of the most important factors okay. and it's often one of the things that is least thought about during these kinds of discussions and I think that was the, um, the kind of one of the core motivators for this approach and I really identified with that I mean it's one of the reasons why I, I wanted to join is because it felt very pragmatic it felt very sensible it yeah. talked about a team who's had a, like uh, like as a pragmatic and kind of mature attitudes to technology like as you said like they weren't chasing the zeitgeist they weren't, like, trying to always do the latest thing. They were saying, well, actually, like, we have a problem that kind of looks like this. Like, what's the best solution to that? Yeah. Right? And actually looking at the outcome, being very outcome-focused.
0: Have you always been like this throughout your career? Or have you gravitated more towards the, the current technologies and had those conversations with people like, whoa, let's solve this? And then yeah, have you been like that? or
1: 100%. Like, oh yeah i mean i the, re- the reason i identify so strongly with this is because i have absolutely done it I, it's absolutely been something i've fallen into um like i did a startup myself and we picked a, I felt the startup itself was built around sort of uh, technology that we were creating that was kind of a little bit in front of um what was available at the time and again we felt that pain right we felt the pain of being on the bleeding edge yeah. um, and therefore we, re- we ended up spending a significant amount of our time just dealing with that rather than actually iterating our product and it it, it ended up being negative for us um i've also i've also been a consultant in the past i I was a um again please forgive me i was an associate partner at mckinsey and company okay um so i um did a bunch of technology consulting and kind of an implicit part of technology consulting is that you're always talking about something fresh and something new yeah right? because ultimately if you if your job as a consultant is to go in and say oh yeah that thing that you're doing already is perfect yeah. you're kind of you're kind of like i um, like, outside yeah you don't need me great fantastic great job um and so uh, there's a lot of conversations where we talk about microservices and this kind of and even beyond microservices, like like <clears throat> pardon me like serverless and a bunch of other stuff. And ultimately I saw a lot of value derived from that stuff because we were talking to very big companies and very big teams. And I talked about like, like like uh, people scale is one of the reasons where those kinds of architectures can start to show value. Yeah. Um, um, but again, at the same time, you kind of see this idea of saying, well, actually is this the best solution to this problem? Um, so in a sense, like the longer I've gone in my career, almost the more cynical yeah. I've become. And I've become a little bit more jaded, and I'm less enamoured. I'm less, I'm less of a magpie, okay. looking for the kind of the shiny thing. Um, and actually, to be honest with you, I think that, as you said, like the reason, like the reason I'm in this position now is because I have been the person making those bad decisions in the past, and so therefore, like I've lived that pain. I have the scars on my back that I can show you uh, before actually having done that.
0: It's a maturation process, right? It, it come it comes with getting those scars. You're going to see what works, what doesn't work. And I think your values probably align more to, okay, I've seen all of that stuff. Let's go with this. Uh, back to Banked, where are you guys operating at the moment? What, what partners, if you can talk to us about the partners' banks that you work with, are you able to do some of that? And, and what might we see from you? let's just say, in a 24-month period?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so right now, like, we... In terms of, like... We're going to have 80% coverage of Euro- of all European banks by about the end of September. Because uh, wow. um, what's really important for us is, as a payments network, like, um, constricting yourself to a small geographic region has value, right? Like the UK, for example, it has value. But ultimately, the kind of the merchants that we serve, like, these are global businesses.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? These are businesses that need to be able to take payments in a variety of countries, a variety of currencies. That's a really strong push for us to be able to support that. But like in that 24-month time period that you talked about, I think that what's going to become pretty clear is that Banked is going to look a lot less like some of the other open banking um, startups that currently exist that ultimately our business is about converting customers. And so an example of this, um, we recently signed an exclusive deal with Avios to distribute Avios points as part of our checkout process. Um, And in that context, that has nothing to do with open banking. right? But ultimately what it's about is about encouraging customers to convert right, and encouraging them to convert. So, and on these like refunds, for example, like refunds in open banking are terrible, right? Like it's, this is not controversial in me saying, anyone who's ever looked at the spec can, can tell you that. Um, but we've, worked, we've built a way of doing refunds for all banks, So that, for example, uh, it's not just like, and there are only two banks in the UK that currently support the refunds API for open banking, right? So if that was all you were doing, there's like a real struggle for you offering refunds, right? And let's talk to a big merchant. If you can't offer refunds, that's a really big problem, right? It's a really big problem. Yeah. As shopping habits change, right? If you've ever bought anything, any clothes online, you might order four sizes and just keep one and send three back. Yeah. So as consumer habits change, refunds become more important. And so we've got a way of actually doing refunds that doesn't exist in open banking. It's because kind of outside of open banking. Um, and so it's going to be a continuation of that journey. It's going to be a continuation of us offering products and services that enable our merchants to maximise their conversion. Um, and actually, as I said, we end up looking less like an open banking company as we grow and more like a fully fledged payment network um uh, than uh, than we do at the moment
0: nice okay how tough is that localization by the way for for banks in europes from a language culture perspective how tough is that
1: yeah. i think that from a purely technical point of view, there are various standards you need to you need to integrate with. So in the UK, we have open banking, then in Europe there are various other like industry bodies that have established their own standards. So from a technical point of view, the more you cover, the more complex it gets. Like the cardinality increases um, uh, in a way that's quite interesting. But from a kind of a consumer point of view, there's two things there. One, you've got two kind of opposing forces, is that the globalization of online commerce. Has started to reduce some of those cultural barriers. Mm. The expectations of online buying gravitate towards a kind of globalized medium Mm -hmm. where the experiences in Italy or Germany or Scandinavia or whatever it is tend to drift towards a single. Uh, like a, a single path, a single customer experience. Yeah. So therefore, like the thing that like the industry is seeing is that the differentiation you need to make on a market by market basis is decreasing because everybody is coming towards this norm um, of actually realizing that as an Italian or a Spaniard or or, um, or somebody from France that the expectations for purchasing online are pretty similar right? Like the the bells and whistles might be slightly different. Like in East Asia, it's very QR code powered and this idea of like, it doesn't use credit cards and that type of thing, but the actual flow, the actual things that you do, the activities that take place are relatively straightforward. now that, that, that doesn't in any way um, uh, reduce the kind of the, the complexity in delivering some of those experiences, right? Like luckily in like uh, in Europe, for example, um, the challenges are less acute, going from the UK to Europe. There are language differences, obviously, there are currency differences, there are like representation and localization differences. but you don't have any of the challenges like for example, doing um, localizing into Arabic, where your text has to be right to left yeah. rather than left to right, uh, or in, in other contexts like that where like fundamentally your user experience needs to change mm-hmm. in quite a strategic quite in quite, a, in quite a significant way. Um, so in that sense, in Europe, it's it's the easier of those challenges to bite off. But it doesn't in any way um, uh, make it necessarily easy. It just makes it more straightforward. Like in the you know a Kneffen diagram, yeah. where like they're comp- they're complex and complicated. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like internationalization is the is the complicated side. It's like building a Formula One car. There's yeah. an instruction with a million different steps, yeah. and it, that's really hard. But there are a million different steps that you know you need to go through. Yeah. Um, um, so in that sense, it's a it's a manageable kind of straightforward task and sort of in the way we
0: think about it. Okay. But again, it,
1: it's challenging, right? It's not an easy thing to do yeah. by the stretch of regulation.
0: The, the regulation and compliance, is that pretty much the same as well? Let's just say we take Europe as a whole, regulation mm-hmm. and compliance, you adhere to European standards. Do you have to do mm-hmm. anything localised as well with that? And is there Gen- technology yeah. that underpins that, that helps you?
1: yeah generally speaking not we're regulated um as europe-wide um as a pisp um now as you would imagine brexit is making that slightly more complicated um but ultimately the, the solution is still the same it's a europe-wide um uh, sort of uh, regulatory coverage um so in that sense no i think that um Uh, one of the great advantages of Europe, the idea of the common market and sort of common regulatory frameworks mean that um, actually it's it's the, the barriers to offering services Europe wide are lower than they are in other kind of meta regions um, equivalent to Europe. Um, um, So I actually said, uh, I mean, as a, as a PISP um, in the UK, like we already um, are passported into Europe um, so we can operate there now. There are all kinds of other challenges with Europe. Like how do you do currency conversion between GBP and euros, right? How do you do currency conversion with USD? And there's some implications of like open banking, for example, offers like retail Forex rates. And those are very expensive. And so therefore, how do you offer your merchants the ability to take advantage of wholesale Forex rates rather than just uh, retail? So there's a bunch of those kinds of complications, but they're operational. Right, rather than uh, sort of strategic or existential.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, go, going back to not necessarily this part of operational, but you mentioned you're a, um, a little bit like a payment network, or that's, that's mm-hmm. how you might form. Um, mm-hmm. You haven't mentioned, or I, I know that you guys don't place too much emphasis on, we're this big infrastructure offering, but mm-hmm. what might that look like? at the moment for you now or what might that look like as you become more of a payment network or do you foresee or again is it still quite simplified i
1: think that ultimately speaking our go-to-market as you sort of highlighted there is a little bit different to some of our competitors right like we're um And as our commercial model is right, a bunch of open banking providers in the market do a kind of API call based pricing model where you could buy a chunk of calls and that represents a cost. Um, We actually think that's the wrong model. We think that ultimately speaking, that's quite a hard thing to predict for our customers. It's like like a pricing philosophy that we kind of have is that if you have to get out a spreadsheet to work out how much you are going to pay for something, you have too complicated a pricing model. Okay. Um, And so therefore, like our pricing model of 0.1% flat fee, it's very simple. It's very easy to understand how it scales. Um, And it provides our merchants with the kind of clarity that they can fix onto um, uh, and and they can identify with. I think as we grow, I think that 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 message stays, that clarity and that kind of, Uh, transaction-based pricing stays as a really important part of our product and our our go-to-market and how we talk about ourselves and we talk about our products. Um, I think as we become, uh, um, as our offering grows, as we offer more compelling products for customers, for merchants to convert their customers with, um, like rewards and other things, then our pricing model, again, those become premium offerings, right? They become this idea of actually saying, all right, if you want to offer Avios, you can absolutely do that, but you can do it at an additional cost. Above zero point one percent, but still, that's a predictable cost. That as a merchant, I can go, all right. Well, zero point one percent versus something slightly higher. but I give them Avios at the same time. Yeah, fantastic. Take that all day because that will get me sales I wouldn't have got before. Um, and so, in that model, it's a it, it's it becomes more scalable, right? With this idea of like offering additional things. Yeah,
0: um, I, um, I love that like, that continuity and that consistency and that flat model. Well, I, I hope. I'm no payment expert. I hope and think that can probably put you in good stead. From a yeah, you mindset, can. you know, if you walked into a store and, you know, a pair of jeans, £45 another day, £65 another day, you're a little bit like, what's happened? Yeah. Very different context. Absolutely. What well, what does Banked look like, look like internally mm-hmm. from a team set up, from a decision-making perspective. So if anyone's listening and is like, wow, um, I like the sound of Joe. I want to knock on his door and see what's happening at Banked. If you were to let them in and show them around, what what might we see from Banked?
1: Sure. Um, I think you see a remote company to start. Like before COVID, that we were partially remote. We were in the office two days a week before COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, we've now effectively given our office up. Um, we don't have an office anymore, wow. um, so we're, and like we're pretty convinced that like we're gonna stay full time remote for the foreseeable. Okay. Okay. Um, so that's one thing I would say, right? Like ultimately, we're a remote company. Um, um, I think as an organisation, um, you would see us being relatively flat. I mean, again, this has become a bit of a truism in technology companies, but like, ultimately we want, um, um, we want uh, as few layers as possible between the leaders of the company and the people doing the, actual, doing, doing the valuable work. Um, um, I think that you would see uh, engineering and product as the biggest team in the company. Mm-hmm. Um, um, ultimately, we have a group of engineers, product and design, who are really pushing the product forward, and they're kind of, by, by volume, the largest part of the company. Um, um, I think that's something that, like, we think is actually pretty important. Um, just because ultimately we're a like we're a technology led company in that sense. Like, we are our businesses, APIs, our business are, me, are like, uh, SDKs and web components and this type of things. Therefore, like having that focus in the team is really important. Um, I think you'd see um, on the engineering team particularly, you'd see. Uh, individuals with, like, quite wide skill sets, right? Like, we like to bias towards people who are kind of, again, this is, again, a bit of a truism, like, who are technologists rather than specialists, right? Right. People who can uh, pick up a problem, and whether it's infrastructure, uh, data, back-end code, front-end, mobile, whatever it is, they feel that they can pick things up and they can turn their hand to it. Um, I think just because, and again, a company of our size, right? We're a company of 25 people. Um, So in that context, like having those people generalists who can turn their hand to things is really valuable to us. Um, um, We're a company that's growing very quickly. Um, So what you would see is like a huge amount of momentum from our sales team um, for actually starting to pull customers in. Some really, really exciting big customers that we're starting to pull on board um that have identified with the messages we talked about before um so yeah I think I think yeah you'd see a team that gets a lot done I think that's for sure like like I'm always like so proud of the work the team does and like how well they do it um like every time it kind of like every time it surprises me it shouldn't anymore but because I've got such a track record of it but like it still does it's like I'm like wow that's a incredible thing to pull off um so yeah it's a it's a team i'm yeah i'm super proud of that team like super super proud
0: of i love that we we so we've got um or 90 of our following uh, are software engineers okay um are you guys hiring engineers at the moment and should they come and knock on your door drop you a message yeah
1: absolutely like please do i mean as much as anything like in the community i'm I I will, I'll, I will always take the time to talk to engineers in the community like one of the things I've done office hours for a number of years where um, if anyone wants to book time with me um, regardless of whether they want to work at banked or not I'm always happy to talk to them give them any advice, do kind of CV screening or anything else to help them with their um, uh, to help them with their careers particularly so for people from underrepresented groups in tech um, um, so when it comes to banked particularly, hundred percent we would love to talk to um uh, engineers who kind of identify with the kind of philosophy for lack of a more elegant way of describing it that we talked about already um who identify with the technology that we use and the kind of challenge because i think that um one thing that's sure is that banked is taking a um, um uh, it's taking a big bet it's trying to trying to capture it has a lot of ambitions so it's trying to do very cool things that's gonna have a big impact and if we can do it like um it's something that I think we're all going to be very proud of to have been a part of. I'm
0: yeah, sure. well, I think what's what strikes me is um, you guys have you've gone against the grain. With you, I can I can hear a real clear, consistent message. So, for anyone listening, I think they'll be able to pick that up as well. I think you've got a really, really clear vision on how you want to execute, which which I really love. I've really enjoyed listening to you. Um, And I love your passion for it. So I'm hoping that a lot of our following, I'm sure, will feel the same. Reach out to Joe. Reach out to some of the guys at Banked. Like Joe said, regardless of technology, what problems you've solved in the past, if you've got an aptitude and an attitude to just want to solve problems, mobile to infrastructure, reach out to these guys. Plus, big bonus – remote. Uh, there we go. So, yeah, um, and what was that decision before we wrap up? Obviously, COVID it's accelerated right. everything, payments included. But just to go office goodbye and work from home. What what was that decision?
1: I mean, apparently it was like when COVID kind of forced us to go remote, as it has done so many other people. Like one of the things that we saw is like we actually ended up being more productive. The team ended up being um, like uh, getting more stuff done and being kind of happier in their day-to-day job. And then when we kind of looked at this, we were saying, well, like, well, what advantage do we get as a business of going back to an office? Mm. Right? Like what value do we derive as a business from a strategic sense, right? Like, because like, if there had been like, if there was some kind of value there, then yeah, we would have done it. But like, we looked at these conversations, we're like, we don't see a compelling reason Mm. for us to be able to, uh, go back into an environment where everyone kind of works and also like we like because of that our team is pretty well distributed at this point like okay. um, we have team, people folks working all over the UK mm. um, increasingly hiring people that uh, are living outside of the UK in order to be able to like make this work and like the reality is like I enjoy working from home like everybody else does it gives us a flexibility um, um, and the kind of a lifestyle that I think is like, frank, frank, frankly, the future of work. But again, that's, again, a bit of a cliche. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for us, it just made sense. Like, when okay. we when we were talking about it, we are like, all right, so let's assume COVID ends at some point, yeah. right, which may not be, be a guarantee, but let's assume it ends well, at some point. Please. Yeah, yeah. please. <laughs> um, um, like, if we were to go out to an office, like, what do we get that we don't have now? Yeah. Um, and the answer was, as far as the leadership team and the rest of the company can think of, like, nothing. Like And actually, like, we actually think it would make it Negative, it would be like worse than the current position. Okay. I think it's a straightforward decision.
0: Yeah. And even a, a satellite office is in people are talking so, about collaboration and popping so in yeah. twice a week.
1: So like we're, going, we're probably going to have a small office that exists as much as anything for regulatory reasons. We need to have an office whereby, um, uh, the SCA and other people can contact us and can actually put us through but ultimately like that office is going to like there's going to be no one who is permanently based in that office it's going to be if you want to go in, if you live in london you want to go to an office a day a week or two days a week yeah go nuts like for sure that, that's that's great um um but and if you, a group of people need to get together and they want to talk about something in person then yeah there's a space that you can do that and there's a um uh, and there are tools and the support for you to be able to make that successful But, yeah, as a, like, you need to be in the office at 9 a.m., and then you need to leave at 5, um, and then you need to sit on this desk. Uh, That is a thing that feels of the past for us right now.
0: Nice. Okay. Uh, Like I've said, I love what you're doing. You're going against the grain. You've got a really clear vision. Good luck to you guys. (laughs) Thank Uh, you. Have you got any more messages for anyone stepping into the community, engineers that are on the rise, or or any principles that maybe you could tell yourself of one, two years' yeah. experience.
1: I think that there's a bunch of things that I could that I that I'm able to say with hindsight. Right? That like if I look back on my career and I say, yeah, if I just knew that when I was starting out, it would have made my life so much easier. Mm. Um but ultimately, like there's a position where those, those lessons that I learned, and actually like the 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 the, the process of learning them, is the thing that's taking me to the place where I am at the moment, um, which I think is a like a, a core message I take. But I think there are things that. Um, um, fundamentally as a community we need to get better at especially as engineers i mean there's a whole inclusion question right which is ultimately something that our, is like our industry has a shameful track record of um in many contexts and also but as an in, as an individual engineer i think actually like often um we let our careers happen to us Right, it, it's very easy. To, uh, it's because we, we're relatively well paid, right? We're relatively in demand, and therefore, it's it's easy to kind of take a a fair attitude to your career and to yeah. sort of watch it happen around you and like expect things to, um, um, to be laid out in front of you and to follow a path and so like, oh yeah, I do three years of this and I should do that and three years of this, mm-hmm. and ultimately, the message I always give junior engineers particularly is to kind of take a lesson from other industries and take much more care about the things that you do Be much more explicit in the decisions that you make be much more um uh um yeah i said like have more strut to put more structure in the things that you do try and take ownership ownership of your career and actually to push that forward and in that context it enables a huge number of great outcomes you'll get paid more you'll be promoted more you'll be you'll think about things in a way that like makes them more strategic for you you'll be happier which I think is the the kind of the outcome that is at the top of those lists because you'll have more control. You'll be doing the things that you love and you enjoy. Um, there have been times in my career where I've taken big salary cuts to do things I enjoy, yeah. right? Like there have been times where um, um, I've taken the other side. You know what? I've I've chose I've optimized my career for money, and like there's no shame in that at all. Yeah. Um, And sometimes people think that there is. And also with trying to think about that and say, actually, right now, what is it that I need? What's going to make me happy? What's going to satisfy me? And being explicit about it and thinking about it and planning for it is probably the thing that will lead to the most happiness in the long term.
0: I love the introspection. Honestly, I I do. Um, And that probably comes with that maturation process, but taking control. I think it's quite important. You, you, gave, you gave the really good point of expecting someone to take you from junior engineer to senior engineer, just because yeah. you're in a team and you've done that three years in, you see that, you know, naturally just that upward trajectory doesn't always yeah. happen that way. So I, I do, I have seen that before, start to take control, work on some of your soft skills, focus yeah. on a particular area Take control.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, guys or ladies and gents, thanks for listening. Um, it's It's been an absolute pleasure. Joe, thank you. That was superb. Anytime. Um, re- reach out to Joe. Reach out to the guys at Banked if you want to change the way digital payments are happening. Um, like Joe said, remote, they're hiring lots of engineers. They're hiring lots of people. If you're a salesperson watching this, I'm sure they're hiring lots of those people. So sure. yeah. um, reach out to us if you need a hand with anything at all. But do come and share your stories with engineers. We've got over the month of August and September, we've got 10 to 15 podcasts that uh, we're talking to companies about. Uh, whether that's payments, whether that's healthcare, whether that's real time betting music industry so we want to see the different challenges like share retweet all of that sort of jazz on all of your social media platforms help us out reach out to me come and share thanks guys thanks joe no problem hey guys thanks for watching this episode Uh, massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us if you want to find out more about us and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at engineers is build a community to drive knowledge, sharing, and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at engineers.io. It's no underscore. We've also got a website, which is engineers.io. These links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to improve on where we can. Thanks, guys.